Thanks for finding the What It Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. I am breaking format just a little bit to bring you a bonus episode. My colleague Lauren Pack has covered some of the biggest court cases in the Miami Valley. One of those cases was that of former cheerleader Brooke Schuyler Richardson, who was accused of killing her infant daughter. Officials said Richardson kept her pregnancy and the birth and death of her daughter right after senior prom secret. This special episode is a rebroadcast of a program produced by Jeremy Ratcliffe of WHIO Radio. In it, Lauren, Jim Bevington, and Kyle Nago discuss the biggest moments, twists, and turns from the two-week trial that attracted international attention. I found the conversation really interesting and wanted to share it with you. The What It Happened Was podcast is sponsored by Premier Health and recorded in the WHIO Radio Studios. Like and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your shows. Select episodes can also be found on the WHIO app for Roku and Amazon Fire. Now here's that show. With regard to count one, we, the jury in the above caption case, find the defendant, Brooke Schuyler Richardson, not guilty of the offense of aggravated murder. And there appear to be 12 jury uh, signatures affixed. Verdict form two, involuntary manslaughter. We, the jury in the above caption case, do by, hereby find the defendant, Brooke Schuyler Richardson, not guilty of the offense of involuntary manslaughter. Count three, child endangerment. We, the jury, find the defendant, Brooke Schuyler Richardson, not guilty of child endangerment. <laughs> Verdict form number four, we, the jury in the above captioned case, find the defendant, Brooke Schuyler Richardson, guilty of the offense of abuse of a corpse. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, are those the verdicts of the jury? Yes, sir. You may be seated. Hello and welcome to our special podcast, From Start to Finish, covering the Richardson Trial. I'm WHIO Radio Program Director Jeremy Ratliff, and during this podcast, you will hear about what you could not see while following news coverage of the trial. Now here is your host, the editor of the Dayton Daily News, Jim Bevington. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm here with Lauren Pack, reporter with the Journal News, and editor of the Journal News, Kyle Nagel. And the Journal News Newsroom has been covering the Brooke Schuyler Richardson trial and from day one. And Lauren, you spent the last two weeks in that trial room. Take us back to the beginning. When did you realize this case was going to be of such high interest? Well, you know, I cover a lot of cases where, unfortunately, children are dead. And there are several cases that I'm covering right now in both Warren County and Butler County. But this case was a little bit different because the baby was exhumed from the backyard. And anytime you get something like that, especially when it's out there in the public where folks can see it in, in, in a nice neighborhood, in, in, uh, in, a, in a small community, it's, it's going to be a big story. And then when the indictment came out and there was such a plethora of charges and a, a big range of charges, I knew that uh, there probably was going to be a big interest and a, a fight on our hands when the Richters joined in as the defense team. Okay. And Kyle, from the whole newsroom's perspective, as this trial date approached, how did you and your team approach it? What did you do to get ready? We knew that we needed to have the person with the most expertise, who is Lauren, there the entire time. We knew it was going to be of extremely high interest because of all of the, the judge, Donald Oda, held a meeting well beforehand and said, here's how we're going to handle 
the television camera setup. Here's how we're going to handle the still camera setup. So we had to coordinate with other newsrooms throughout the region to say, okay, our photographer Nick Graham will be there on Tuesday, Thursday to provide still photos. Other media photographers will be there other days of the week to do that. But the other thing that we had to do was make sure that we had folks ready to go to help cover things that came up during the trial, potentially, Mm -hmm. where... As an example, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but once a sentencing is done, the jury information is released. We have another reporter who heads off immediately to try to talk to jurors, which we did. And so we have a person who is in the courtroom focused total attention on the details that are happening and the nitty gritty and and the core testimony and evidence. And then we had to be ready to support that with to deliver other things to our audience in different ways. And so we used a lot of staffers in a lot of different ways to do that. Okay. Lauren, describe in the end, how long was this trial? In the end, it was, it it was almost two full weeks. Um, We started the day after Labor Day. So you had four, or I'm sorry, you had four days that, that, that week. And then you had five days, if you count the sentencing, uh, and I do, um, the next week. So that's almost you know, two full weeks. Going into day one, what was your expectation? What did you, what were you ready to see? Well, I count the jury selection as day one. Some journalists don't. I do because I know it's very important and they, and they had a lot at stake. They had to get a jury that each side had to get a jury that they thought was uh, going to give them a fair shake, so to speak. So when I went into jury selection, I also knew that the Ritgers, the defense attorneys, had twice filed uh, for change of venue, saying that a uh, jury could not be seated that would give Schuyler a fair trial. So there was a lot at stake. The judge would not do change of venue until they tried to seat a jury. So we had to make sure that uh, we believed that the people were telling us the truth. There was every hand went up in the room when the judge asked them how many people knew about the case. And every hand went up in the room, but they all said that they could set aside what they had heard on plethoras of, of, of you know, media blogs and, and Twitter and everything else that was out there from, you know, all over the world, really, and, and make a decision. So I, I'm always interested in jury selection. And, and it went very orderly. The judge, uh, it's, I've seen it go long and um, the judge was very orderly about giving them so much time to talk and, and address the jurors. But one thing that was really interesting is it, it, it was almost like a small opening statements of sorts that the judge let them do. Um, and it, I've never seen that done before. And I've covered maybe 100 trials, and I've never seen that done before. And um, it was interesting because I had my friends who are are attorney friends and prosecutor friends asking me, gee, we've never seen that done before either. But the judge thought that it needed to be done so that the jurors would have a little bit better idea of what the case was about and if they could set aside Mm -hmm. their, their feelings, knowing a little bit more about the case and still, you know, follow the evidence that was in the courtroom. So we've talked about Judge Oda a little bit. Was there what else or was there anything else that you saw him do in handling this trial that was new to you? Judge is what I like to call a free thinker, and he's uh, not afraid to put on a gag order. Um, He's not afraid to have his uh, bailiff go and tell somebody to hit the road when he thought they were causing too much of a disturbance in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And Judge also took a hold of the remains of the body of, of um, Skylar Richardson's baby. Um, and that was not expected at the sentencing. I What's was, that mean? He decided that the baby's remains would go to the Richardson family who had a burial plot. And the reason he decided that was because he viewed that the baby, for better or for worse, as evidence. And he decides what's done with the evidence. Okay. Now, I had been talking with the prosecutor, uh, uh, Prosecutor Fornshell, as well as the um, the coroner, Warren County coroner, at the time, and and they believed that the remains, because there were two families involved, the family of the of the father of mm-hmm. the baby, who were also in the courtroom, as well as the Richardson family, and they believed that those two people those two families were very much interested in taking the remains and burying, and burying them. So basically what would happen is a family court or a probate court would decide that. It's not unusual, I mean, not just in a, in a homicide case, but also in, in, in some family cases, um, things like that happen. So the coroner wasn't that um, surprised about that, but I was really surprised when the judge... Made just a decided that he made a ruling right then, uh, right after he sentenced her, and he made a ruling. And we'll see if that holds. Okay. I have a feeling they may not. On that point, if I may, so another thing about that is, and the judge addressed it during and after the sentencing, and Lauren wrote about it this week, recently, is that he allowed, as an example, holes to be drilled in the side of the building to mm-hmm. run cable to support the large media effort that was going on. So it could be broadcast gavel to gavel on court TV, for instance, so that there were tables set up outside with monitors so that more media members could be there. So he also went to lengths that are very uncommon for trials to happen to give, Lauren, I don't want to speak for you, but his point was he wanted to give the public access to everything that was going on so that no one could say that if it were conviction, innocent person was convicted, or if it was acquittal, murderer was acquitted. He wanted to provide everybody access to everything that was going on, highly unusual. And I think, you know, Lauren, I think it happened all in a pretty orderly fashion, uh, frankly, for the way that it was covered and delivered and it got organized and so it could be in front of everybody. I mean, Ohio's got a proud tradition of court rulings Sam Shepard case famously was called a Roman carnival uh, because of how wild the the public and press behavior was, up to and including photo- photographing the jury before the trial. And we have a lot of rules in place now that stem from that case back in the 50s. And there was an so, incident go ahead. during which, Lauren, you could talk more about this, but the those who were in the courtroom, one person, the st- the pool still photographer, was allowed to take photos. And I think even at one point there was somebody who was, there was. taking there was photos and they had to have a, a finger wagged at them for doing that. I, and that's it's very hard because the judge did say, I mean, I'm in Judge Otis' courtroom quite a bit. I'm in all the courtrooms quite a bit. And and in and, and this day and age, it's very, very common for me to just pull out my camera and take pictures during mm-hmm. during trials even not of the jury but you know somebody on the stand some of the evidence even the judge you know stuff like that and i really had to remember 
that I was told not to do that in this case. That it was a still, it was, you know, we had a pool of photography and judge said, you know, better not see your camera out. So. So testimony's underway. You've covered this for a couple of years already. What was the first thing you were surprised by, Lauren? The first thing that I was surprised by was the alleged, um, the confessions, so to speak. I call them admissions because I really was expecting something terribly um, damning mm -hmm. to come out of um, Skylar's mouth um, in the confessions. This is during the taped the con yes, uh, the taped, interviews with yes, the police. Yes, the taped interviews with police be because I knew that they didn't have a whole lot of evidence out there that didn't come from text messages or out of her own confessions or mm -hmm. her own admissions because there was n no evidence that could come from the body. Now, because, you know, been in the ground a long time, they couldn't prove that it was it was a lie, they couldn't prove the cause of death, you know, the, the prosecutors all made out that, you know, that's because she put it in the ground and made sure we couldn't. But, you know, that's, that's it's really tough to, I, I think it's tough for um, jurors to convict someone if you can't prove that, mm -hmm. That's, that someone was murdered. So I, I was a little surprised. I mean, I, I did see a lot of the admissions that could be pretty damning, but they were kind of all over the place to me. So. Now, when you're listening to that, are, do you watch the juries for their reactions or their body language? And was there anything that gave you a, a hint of what they were thinking? I do watch the juries. I, I, I'm always kind of interested in how, uh, how many of them take notes a lot okay. because if you're if you're furiously taking notes like me or on Twitter, um, then you really can't watch the video itself. You can hear it very well, but I think a lot of times you have to look at the body language and and how facial expressions happen and and stuff like that. So I do watch the jury. I I'm not real good at reading juries, and, okay. and I know there are there are defense attorneys who are or think they are, mm -hmm. uh, prosecutors who think they are, um, and they hire whole people to, you know, to help them out with that, you know, with the right person and, and to sit on the jury and, and what they think. But, uh, you know, they were very attentive. That's that's what I can say. Okay. Well, uh, so as the prosecution, which went first, began laying out its case, um, what what was the reaction in the courtroom was there anything that they introduced in evidence the photo of their remains is the main one i'm thinking of that brought sort of a, a a reaction from the people in the courtroom well some of the people in the courtroom had to be told a couple times uh to hold their facial expressions and and not to be whispering and doing quote a running commentary no, i never heard anything like that i was on the other side of the courtroom um, this courtroom is small, and um, there was there were reactions to evidence like that. And these were from um, the way that I spewed it. They were from family members of the um, the uh, the father of the mm -hmm. baby. It, it's tough to see things like that, to see remains of a child, um, and these were just little teeny tiny bones that you could hardly even see. Really, was a person. I've you know, I see mm -hmm. a lot of things that are, are bad, but these were just little tiny bones. But then they, they sent them all out together, you know, and kind of put them together in, in, a, in a body shape. And they didn't bring of, them actually into the room, no, right? No, okay. no, these were, these, were, um, these were photos. And, yeah. and they kind of laid them out as, as what 
the prosecution called Baby Richardson mm-hmm. and the defense called Annabelle, which was interesting. But um, they uh, laid them out and let folks look at what they had left. And there were lots of bones missing. And that did get a reaction. And, and, and they had to be told, you know, to, because they were near the jury, they yep. had to be told to keep a stone face. No talking. Now, Kyle, as the sort of opening week was going on, the prosecution is letting its case, what could you tell from from where your vantage point in terms of the reader interest? You know, I know that your newsroom produces a lot of material on, on digital all day and then publishes it at, at the end of the day and we print it the next day. What kind of feedback were you seeing? What kind of reader interest were you seeing? One of the things that we can watch in two ways. One, we have tools that show what people are looking at currently on our digital products. And we have tools that show uh, for the entire day how many times things were viewed. And the interest was incredibly high. In particular, we saw people doing internet searches and finding content of ours that was even not from this week of the trial, but past things that we had written because they folks were at home, seeing it on TV, seeing it on Inside Edition, Googling her name finding material of ours to pop up. And so the other thing that we did that worked out very well for us was we were able to also live stream the entire proceedings. So we had on our sites and on Facebook Live virtually every moment as well what was happening. So we saw people both wanting to read the engaging content that we had, the recaps of the day, the we sometimes did separate stories about what was said during specific testimony that was very engaging what was seen in interrogation videos mm-hmm. what uh, what as lauren mentioned something that was critical to the entire thing and we knew was we were going to see these videos of two police interrogations and what she said during those was going to be the jury had to decide what they believed or didn't believe from those and that was critical and so we were making sure that we were one of the things that's difficult in something that's as high interest as this, is you can get into the weeds on anything. There was a lot of medical testimony that was any person, if they watched the entire thing, might say to themselves, oh, that's kind of interesting. But in the grand scheme of things, was not maybe as important Mm -hmm. to some of the key points being made as some other things that were being said. And so part of our responsibility is to help people understand what is actually most important, what are both sides arguing. And so that's why we provided live stream of that, Lauren was tweeting furiously while sitting in the courtroom. And then we have multiple headlines and piece and stories per day on our digital products that tried to help explain that. And also important, I thought, was every day we did a recap of the day, so to speak. So there were things we were updating throughout the day. But then at the end of the day, our audience could see, okay, here's a story that has the most important stuff that happened today. And we got – but there was no question that – in any given moment of those days and throughout those entire weeks that it's something that dominated our audience's interest in our area for that period of time. Taking a break in the action to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast and I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. We are so happy to welcome our newest sponsor, Premier Health. Our care lives in the hour between dropping off the kids and making it to your first meeting because scheduling your doctor's appointment should work around your life not the other way around. Premier Health now offers online scheduling for primary care and select specialty services. Setting up an appointment takes seconds, and in some cases, you can see a provider the same day. Just head to premierhealth.com schedule. 
to see how easy it can be. Our care lives on your schedule. Premier Health. Now back to the breakdown of the Brooke Richardson case. Now, Lauren, we're coming to the end of the prosecution's case. Do they wrap it up in a big way or do they just have a final final piece of evidence or a final witness and move over to the defense? Well, you know, they they start uh, towards the end. We had a lot of the uh, we had a lot of the the, the scientific uh, folks. We had the doctors, and we had the we had the uh, forensic pathologist that was trying to basically repair some of or or at least give an explanation for some of the reasons that the charring had been recant- of the bones had been recanted by the original uh, forensic anthropologist that took a, took a look at them. But in the end, I mean, the, the, the defense, you know, called their own set of, of uh, doctors. And in the end, I think that it, it came down to which one you believed. And, you know, it, I, 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 I just think that, um, that the words that came out of Skylar's mouth and the text messages back and forth to her mother that seemed pretty damning, um, were what the the evidence was was going to sway them with and and you know really they didn't do a big what I would call a final witness everybody kept mm-hmm. waiting for them to call uh, Skyler's mom mm-hmm. to the stand they did not um, and so it, they kind of they kind of wrapped it up and and that was it and then the uh, defense came on in now they had you know they they have closings that they like to kind of do the showboating on at the end but that comes after the defense now let's talk about the defense a little bit because was Skyler an expectation did you expect to hear her from her during the trial well there's always a there's always a a um, you know debate among defense attorneys about putting their their um, their client on the stand and a lot of times if, if it's a self-defense case uh, then they're going to do it. If, mm-hmm. if this person is claiming self-defense or something like that, then they're, they're probably going to do it. Um, and I talked to the defense attorney, one of the defense attorneys, and I asked them that. I said, how many, how many, how many witnesses do you have left? Are you going to put Skylar on the stand? And he said, we don't know yet. And then he <laughs> gave me the thumbs down. So I think he kind of thought that they didn't need to. I mean, the jury... Heard a lot from Skyler. From those taped interviews. From those taped interviews. Yeah. So all you got is you've got a maybe a skilled prosecutor that might be able to get even more confusing testimony out of her. Mm-hmm. Or you've got someone who's weighing 89 pounds and looks pretty sick and kind of pitiful. So do you put them on the stand and chance the jury, you know, being sympathetic? On a day-to-day basis, what was her demeanor? Her demeanor was just staring straight ahead. And, I mean, and I will say this, though. I was seated behind her. So, I mean, the media was in the gallery was all behind her. So that's kind of tough. Uh, She would turn around and talk to her attorneys and and stuff like that, and you kind of see. But I did not see her. A lot of times you'll see um, defendants writing things to their their defense attorneys or talking to them a lot or getting hacked off. But um, she was pretty much stared straight ahead, and about the only time I saw any type of um, emotion from her was when her brother Jackson testified as a character witness, mm-hmm. um, and at the verdict. Okay. Um, so let's go to 
closing statements. Mm -hmm. So like you said, uh, attorneys often, that is their last crack with the jury, and they do try to bring a little emotion into it to support their case. Um, Which one, as a reporter, did you think presented their case better? I think the prosecution did the best with what they had. Um, and they and they did the best with trying to make the jury believe that she honestly was um, that she had planned to kill the baby when she when she found out she was pregnant and that's why she was charged with with um, aggravated murder or at the very least did nothing to help her child when it was born alive. Now that's what the prosecution says. I think they did their best with what they had to hammer it home. They showed the text messages again. They showed parts of of the um, of the tape. They read the transcripts transcripts again. You know portions of it, and and they did a they did a pretty good job. The the defense was a little more quiet, and um, Charles Ritkers Jr. is uh, is a little more quiet than his father, mm-hmm. and he did the closings. Um, and but I think they did a they did they both did a good job. I don't know that it swayed anybody. I think it was already a done deal. I was going to ask, the jury at that stage, are they still the same, or are they beginning to give any physical uh, display of, of what they're thinking is? I, I think they were squirming a little bit. I think they were yeah. about done. I mean, sometimes, and, and in, some of the, in some of the expert testimony, you can see it too. There, You can see the jury losing, kind of losing a little bit of interest when mm-hmm. you keep asking questions a lot, and the judge would make people move on so to speak because they'd ask the same question four or five times and but um, the judge also only gave them an hour for uh closings he wanted it 45 minutes but he gave them an hour an each. hour each yep that's okay. it and he timed it uh because at one point i'm not sure i believe it was charlie jr asked how much time do i have left judge and he knew exactly how much time they that had was the left. that was uh the what? prosecutor after after it was and he's and the judge said you've got until 1047 (laughs) and so they were well aware they were and that goes back to the same idea and i don't mean to interrupt but that goes back to the same idea of judge oda was very in control of every aspect of what was happening in the courtroom with the media with the public with the timing and that was very clear throughout several things that happened in this trial so before we i ask you about the the verdict itself to that point, this was internationally being broadcast. Court TV's got a stage out outside the building. You know, as the judge indicated, they had to drill drill holes in their walls to get them their cables. Was that level of visibility impact or affect the what happened in the courtroom to your? Did it ever get crazy? Did it ever get? Uh, you mean among among the the um, the. The attorneys themselves? Just with the the fact that there was an international audience, did that, sitting in the courtroom, did you ever get that feeling? Well, I, I had to be there at 7.30 in the morning and run for a seat <laughs> because it's a small courtroom. So I knew that there were lots of people that just really wanted to be in the courtroom itself. So I knew that there was a lot of interest, and I knew there were a lot of people that were following me on Twitter that were from out of the country. But I guess, you know, I've sat in a lot of trials. So to me, if you go, follow what's being go- what's going on in the courtroom, because I didn't get to see a lot of court TV because right. I was writing in the courtroom. So I'm going to have to go back and take a look at what court TV had to say because a lot of people didn't like what court TV was saying and thought they were taking sides. I don't know whether they were or not because I didn't see it. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, you can you can get a sense that it's a big trial, and I've covered big trials before, but with a lot of media. But that's I think that's the first time that I've ever had that much international yeah. interest. Yeah. So it's time for the verdict. It's a couple minutes to go. What's the feeling in the room? Well, we had had a question a couple hours before. They only were out for four hours. Mm-hmm. So, and we had a question a couple hours before, and it was about the last charge, which was the strangest to read if you read the law. It's a little confusing. The law is a little confusing on this. This is the of abuse course. of a cor- yeah. corpse. Uh, that it's a little confusing on on that. They wanted more clarity. And um, I had an idea then that they'd already made up their mind on the first on the first three, mm-hmm. and uh, it was likely going to go in the favor of the defense. So, um, you know, because we, it was that quick, yeah. Okay. I mean, we were there a long time. Yep. And it's it's only been two hours, and they're asking about the last charge. So I just got the impression that they mm-hmm. uh, really hadn't had already, you know, and probably had made up their mind before they even went back there. I'll go ahead and jump in here to talk about what we heard. So we spoke to two jurors afterward. Ed Richter, Mm -hmm. a reporter on our staff, did. And they, the key thing to the entire case was everybody agreed she had a baby and she kept it secret and she buried it in her backyard. The main disagreement was, was it alive when it was born? Mm -hmm. And the experts on both sides said that we can't tell what the cause of death was because the baby's remains were too far gone. They were discovered more than two months after the baby was buried in the first Mm -hmm. place. And so those jurors told us we just didn't have enough evidence that showed the baby was alive when she was born. And that's, that's why, as Lauren is exactly saying, it was pretty clear to us once a question came in on the fourth of four charges that they had made it their way past the three that would have been the three most serious that would have had by far the more serious consequences. And it was just so helpful to hear that directly from those jurors later where the, a lot of the evidence was circumstantial. A lot of the evidence was statements made, text messages sent, Mm -hmm. but not a lot that clearly they said clearly indicated to them that there was any reason to believe the baby was born alive. So Lauren, what was the reaction in the room? I think a lot of people were shocked, and then um, the family was sitting in the front row, and I was two rows behind them, and they were holding hands, and they were crying, um, and and Skyler, you know, she was relieved when they read not guilty on ag murder, and but she knew <laughs> um, that they had to go down the line because involuntary manslaughter is going to send you to prison too, and then when they came back with the with the other two, she just really broke down and started sobbing. Um, and honestly, I watched her more than I did the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but Charlie Jr. went over and shook their hand and, you know, told them that, you know, I guess, that, you know, well-fought <laughs> trial. And uh, then immediately, you know, the uh, throngs of media went to the Ritkers and we had to have a, a press conference um, afterwards, which was huge. I mean, out in the lobby, the judge had already made it clear that the hallway outside his courtroom was part of the courtroom, so mm-hmm. you weren't going to be interviewing anybody out there. So we took it, had to take it down the down the aisle, so to speak. And then she was led away in cuffs for she was. one night. 
Yes, Judge uh, Judge uh, took her into custody, which I think was a little bit of a shock too, because I rem- I remember looking at her and her saying, "What are they?" It almost looked like she, that's what she was saying to yep. Charlie Jr. And uh, he explained it to her, and uh, you know, he he revoked her bond. He gave her a fair bond. He gave her a fifty thousand bo- dollar bond, which he took a lot of abuse for. And um, you know, she had been convicted of a felony. And he uh, went ahead and took her into custody, so she spent the night in the Warren County Jail. Okay. And then uh, next day, actual sentence for that charge. Going in, was was there any feeling in the room? Did, did you get any sense that people were expecting the actual sentence to be more than it ended up being? Or Oh, I think people was? wanted I think the sense in the courtroom, I, I'm not— No, in, in the courtroom, I think everybody was pretty realistic that she was going to get probation. I mean— she hasn't been convicted of anything else. Um, she doesn't have any prior record. She's been out on $50,000 bond for two and a half years, as she's always showed up for her court appearances. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem as if she's done anything to violate her, her pre-trial probation, so to speak. There really wasn't any reason to think that she wouldn't. And as Judge explained, she could get a year, but half of that, by statute, has to be community control. So, in other words, the most he could have given her was six months in jail, uh, which would have been in the county jail, not in prison. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he went ahead, and I, I just think he had to weigh all those those factors and the fact that she had, you know, that she had caused no problems on, while waiting trial, and um, she had spent seven days in jail. People tend to forget that too because. You know, there was a time that she was arrested and then she was indicted, and that mm-hmm. was way back two and a half years ago. So she did spend some time in jail, and she spent a night overnight in, in the you know after the the verdict was read. So um, I think everybody kind of expected her to get probation. Okay. Um, any reaction surprise you when it was all done? I mean, anybody do yeah, any of the family members or any of the other folks who were around all week respond in a way that well, took all you of the family, her immediate family left. Mm-hmm. They they were let out the back, um, and you know it, it it kind of, and then the Ritkers talked, and then and then um, the prosecutor David Fornshell also um, held a press conference, which I thought was. Um, I thought was pretty a stand-up of him. I mean, you know, he lost a—I'm sorry. He that he kind of lost a pretty big case. I mm-hmm. mean, and um, he was there to uh, tackle the tough questions. And, um, you know, I think both of them did a good job. Um, you know, yeah, I think they both did a good job. So when it was all said and done, highly visible act of— you know, the legal process of the United States was on display for everybody to see. The case resolved however it resolved. The jury made up its mind. How do you feel about your role and how you served the public in helping get this information out? Uh, again, I'm a crime and courts and crime reporter. I, I do a lot of cases. Not, not all of them go to trial. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are plead, plead out. But I try to pride myself on being very fair. And I tell defense attorneys that. I tell prosecutors that. Not the first time that I've talked to David Fornshell or Charlie Ritkers, Jr. and Sr. during this whole process. And, you know, I've, I, pulled, I pulled documents. I pulled motions. And we went to 12th District Court of Appeals. And we argued all of this stuff for two and a half years. And I was at every single one of them. 
So I always try to play it right down the middle, and I feel like I did. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't tweet what I think is going to happen. I don't tweet, you know, I just I try to keep it very fair. And um, I'll tell the defense attorneys and the prosecutors if they ask me what I think after the evidence is presented. But um, I feel good about the fact that we reported and we didn't take sides. And I think that's just really important. You can't get caught up. Like, you have to kind of be a juror. You can't get caught up in the emotions. That's the way I see it. And Kyle, at the end of the journal news coverage was really blanketing for two weeks. Any feedback from readers? Have you heard from people about what you all did? I think what we were hearing was that a lot of people don't really have, don't get involved in the court system in that way. A lot of people are never actually on trial for anything. And therefore, what they often appreciate is the difference between, and the Judge Oda references several times, there's this thing, but by law, we can only do this thing. And he may was making things very clear about what was only allowed to be considered, what was part of the law, what could be introduced, what could not, what had to be moved to the side. And so everybody has, many people would have an emotional reaction to what they see and what they believe who are watching at home. But what we tried to do most and what we heard from people about is we, we were really trying to explain exactly what was happening and why it was happening that way. Ahead of time, we were able to say the sentence is allowed to be this and that's set in stone where mm-hmm. a judge can't just say like, well, 10 years because I'm mad that we were on trial for two weeks. The He had to follow specific things and we knew what those things were and so we were explaining that throughout. We did a good job of explaining, as an example, Skyler's mother, Kim, was not in the courtroom throughout the entire proceedings until the sentencing. I th- no, uh, no, closing. She was there for closing. Excuse me, yes. But that's because, very specifically, she was on a list to be a potential witness and therefore was not allowed in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. However, the father was, and he was somebody who testified. And so we explained that they were classified differently and therefore one was allowed in and one was not. We did a good job of explaining uh, midway after the prosecution ended its case, one of the charges was dismissed by the judge. It was his ruling that the prosecution had not done enough to improve their case on the tampering on tampering with evidence. And so all throughout we are there's a difference between saying things because they're sensational and we know they will jump in front of people Mm -hmm. and explaining what is going on specifically. One of the things that the defense team hammered home in their news conference afterward was they felt like this case was sensationalized from the beginning and that caused them great concern about being able to find a jury, being able to seat a jury that they felt would be fair. And a lot of that came from, Lauren referenced it, an early ruling by a forensic specialist that the bones of the baby were charred and that forensic specialist later said, I was wrong, that's not the case. And so there were things that we could have done, said, produced that were more sensational than we did, but we stuck very close to let's explain what's important and what's happening. All right. Well, Kyle Nagel, editor of the Journal News, Lauren Pack, a veteran court reporter. I really appreciate the work that you both did over that and working with you. I was proud of what I saw. And I hope uh, your readers, I suspect, did get a great deal of information and hopefully they understood what this uh, extremely important case uh, amounted to for the people involved and for their community. Thanks again for listening to this special episode of the What It Happened Was podcast. 
I told you that case was interesting. We will be back next week with our regular format, so prepare yourself for that. See you later, alligators. <laughs>